Morning, folks. Good to see you. How are we all doing? You're a quiet bunch this morning. <laughs> uh, let's, let's pray and give this time to God. He's among us, and uh, we just want to hear his voice as we turn to the Bible. Father, thank you so much that you're here. God, you're incredible. You're huge. You're the creator of all things. And you know every one of us. You know the detail about our lives. You know us and you love us. God, we're asking you today that you'd speak right into our hearts, that you'd say things to us, God, that will leave us eternally different. Come, God, by your mighty Holy Spirit. Speak to us. Speak through me. Let us all have ears to hear and soft hearts. God, whether we're first time here or whether we've been here umpteen times, I pray that the truth of God's word would impact us afresh today. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. If, if you're visiting with us, again, let me add my welcome to James's welcome. Great to have you here with us. Uh, we're a church on a journey. We have a vision uh, for our city and beyonds, and we'd love you to connect with that vision and plug into the church. So good to have you here. Love to see you connect. If you want to know more about the church, uh, go to the information point. Good to have Deborah Zuin. Good to see Debbie. Debbie's over from Brazil. Good to wave, Debbie. Yay. Who knows Debbie? If you know Debbie, give her a round of applause. Good to have Debbie here. Love to your family, Debbie. Good to see you here today. Great to come all the way from Brazil to church, isn't it? (laughs) Commitment. I like that. Okay, there was a guy who went to see a doctor one day and he said, "Uh, Doctor, I have a terrible problem. One day I feel like uh, uh, a wigwam and the other day I feel like a teepee. And he said, your problem is you're too tense. Well, today we're going to speak about how you can relieve your tension. How do you deal with tension in life and stress? How do you overcome that? Well, Jesus has given us a lot to say about that. Just ahead of the Second World War, just as, as the things were building up towards the Second World War, uh, the, the United Kingdom government in 1939 produced a series of posters. Uh, this, this is a picture of one of the posters that they made. Uh, it, it's entitled... Uh, Keep calm and carry on. You've probably seen this icon uh, used in t-shirts and in mugs and all sorts of things. Keep calm and carry on. Well, it first appeared just before the Second World War, when the threat of war was on the horizon, when everyone was on the edges of their seats, wondering what the future held. The government wanted to say something that would bring peace and calm to to a whole nation. So they produced about 250,000 of these posters, but they never actually put them in the streets. Because they were only going to be put in the streets if we were invaded. And they wanted to somehow or another calm the population down if an invasion actually happened. So they had these and they'd produced them, but they didn't actually put them on the walls. They sat undiscovered for about 50 years until in a little bookshop, second-hand bookshop, a guy going through a box of stuff came across one of these posters, put it up in his bookshop. Everyone commented on it and liked it, so they started making replicas of it. Then all of a sudden what was a hidden unknown poster which would make, had been made for the war by the government all of a sudden became well known. And, it, and what was it people like about it? People like the message. People like the message of hope, the encouragement. And people have it on t-shirts and all sorts. Keep calm and carry on. And if I was to say to you, everything's going to be all right, you might say to me, how do you know? On what basis are you saying that? Now, if I was a doctor and I said to you, everything's going to be okay. 
you'd say, okay, he's a medical professional, he's diagnosed my situation, he's given me the right medication, he understands the seriousness of it, and on the basis of all that analysis, he's saying everything's going to be okay. So there's a basis to me saying everything's going to be okay. But if I just came along randomly and said, everything's going to be okay, you'd have every right to say, on what basis? Jesus, we're on the, this journey through John, John's Gospel, chapter 13, right through to chapter 17. Here now, Jesus speaks to disciples when they had just heard bad news. They were troubled in their hearts, and Jesus was bringing a word of encouragement to them. John 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me <clears throat> that you may be also so that you may be with me that you may also may be where I am. You know the way where to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, "Lord, we do not know where you are going." How can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus starts by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. I think that's God's word to you today. Let not your hearts be troubled. The situation is, uh, we, we, we've been working through it. You've seen it in the last few weeks He's just discussed with his disciples. He's just told them that he's going to die. He's just told them that someone among them is going to betray him. It's Judas. And then he's just told them that, and Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. You think you're going to die for me? Actually, you're going to deny me three times tonight. And he said to the rest of the disciples, you're also all going to desert me. So he's just told them really troubling things. Their minds are all over the place. They're bamboozled. Their concept of Messiah would be that the Messiah wouldn't be a dying on a cross person, but would be someone who would be victorious and would reign as a king and would be unintimidated and would lead armies. And their concept was all messed up. They were told they were going to betray him and deny him. And they were telling, he was telling them that imminently he's about to die. They were seriously troubled. And in response to the bad news, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. But just like if I came to you and said, cheer up, everything's going to be fine, you would have every right to say to me, on what basis do you say that? So Jesus doesn't just say, don't let your hearts be troubled, nice encouraging statement. He goes on to qualify exactly why you shouldn't let your hearts be troubled. He's given us three reasons. Three reasons why you today and Gorgie do not need to have troubled hearts. Number one, first remedy for a troubled heart is faith in God. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Say, believe in God. Now, society tells you, have faith in yourself. Believe in yourself. You know, look at yourself in the mirror every morning and say, you're great, you're going to make it. Even if you're a failure and you're not great, right? Okay, so that's what society says. That's, that's fun to, I mean, there's no, no problem with having good confidence and good self-esteem. No problem at all. No problem. But really, the, I mean, I don't have a huge amount of faith in myself. I've kind of got to know myself over the last 36 years and I realize I let myself down quite often. But one person who will not wait, let me down is God. And therefore, the message, have faith in God, is such a better message than have faith in self because he is totally dependable. Notice Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
Don't let it happen. In other words, you have a choice. You choose not to let your hearts be troubled. The ball's in your court with that one. You see, right through the Bible, people making this choice. You see Moses and the Israelites, when they were standing there, (coughs) the Red Sea was ahead of them. The Egyptians were chasing them. They were between the Egyptians and the Red Sea, and they thought, either way, we'll either drown or be killed by the Egyptians. And and Moses stood up and, and by God's word, said to them, do not fear, Stand, stand by and see the salvation which the Lord will accomplish for you today. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe God. So they have to make a choice. We see right through Scripture people like this. We see David when he went out to fight against Goliath. It was an intimidating moment. And as he went out towards Goliath, Goliath said to him, he laughed at him, he scorned him because he's just a kid. He said, you're coming at me with sticks as if I'm a dog. He said, today I'm going to kill you and feed your carcass to the animals of the the birds of the air. And it's so intimidating. But David refused to let his heart be troubled. He let not his heart be troubled. He had faith in God. I love what it says in Psalm 56, verse 3. David said, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. You see, the solution for a troubled heart is faith. You see, in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood before the king, they'd just been threatened and told, if you don't bow down and worship this idol that I've made, I will cast you into the fiery furnace. And he turned it up even hotter, so it killed him even quicker. And so, and they unintimidatedly said, we can't do this. We had faith in God. They refused to let their hearts be troubled. They had faith in God. We see it in Peter, when just days before, the apostle James had been executed. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter was now arrested. And he was in prison between two soldiers in chains. And he was fast asleep the night before he was being brought out to face the public. Now, as far as he knew, it looked like it was just going to go the same way for him as it had gone for James. It looked like he was going to be taken out in public and executed. And yet, he was fast asleep. Fast asleep. A bit uncomfortable with the chains, but he was perfectly happy. Incredible. To the point where an angel came to deliver him and had to actually wake him up. Wake up! Shh, I'm sleeping. <laughs> he, he let not his heart be troubled. Why? Because he had faith in God. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. So some of you are going through immigration crisis, and you're all over the place, and your, your hearts are fluttering, and your heart's all troubled, as if somehow or another it's all to do with you. Is it not saying in Acts 17 that he has decided the places of your habitation? So let not, don't let it, rein it in. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Some of you are going through a health crisis and you know, you're, you're, you've heard the news or the doctors have told you stuff and your heart is racing all, your, your mind's going everywhere. You're thinking of every possible scenario. You've, you've, you've listened to certain people diagnose you or went like that for them and your mind's all over the place and your emotions are all over the place and God says, no, no. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. See, you're not going to hear him if you're all over the place. Just calm it. What's he saying? What's he saying? Some of you are all worried. Will I ever, ever meet the person I'm going to marry? I long to get married. 
God knows this ache in my heart. It's been years. I, I thought, you know, I thought years ago it'd be a year later, but here we are, 10 years later, I'm still waiting. Will I ever get married? Let not your heart be troubled. What has God said to you? You know, some of you just know, I'm born to be a husband and a dad. You just know it. Well, would God create you that way to frustrate you? Some of you just know, I'm born to be a mum. Does God create you that way to frustrate you? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. You see, this was Jesus' answer to the people who had just heard bad news. They had just heard that I'm going to die on the cross. One of you is going to betray me and you're all going to deny me and just run away. They just heard bad news. And this was Jesus saying, now this is how you respond to bad news. Don't let your hearts be troubled. It says in Psalm 112, 7, uh, they have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Let's read that together. One, two, three. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. You see, your emotions are like wild horses. <clears throat> that wild horse needs a rein. If you don't rein in that wild horse, that wild horse will just go crazy. And once it's bolted, it's really hard to stop. So you stop it from bolting. You rein it in. No, no, no. Come back, you. And don't allow your emotions to go off and crazy tan you. You rein it in. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Why was it when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead that he had to put all the mourners and those in mass hysteria out of the house? before he raised from the dead? Why was it in a very similar way, Peter, before he raised Dorcas from the dead, had to put all the wailers and mourners and grievers, those whose emotions were just let loose like wild horses, why did he have to put them out of the house and then just get quietly on his knees, say a prayer, okay, I'm going to raise her, rise. Don't let your heart be troubled, rein it in. Believe in God, that's the answer. You see, here's the second double truth in this message. It's not just that faith is the answer to unbelief. Sorry, faith is the answer to trouble. It's that the source of trouble is unbelief. Unbelief and trouble go hand in hand. And the solution to it is faith in God. Let me talk to you about the nature of unbelief. Unbelief is when someone has fundamentally lost confidence in God. You see, someone says, I wish I could believe. I wish I could believe. What you're actually saying is, I wish I could stop thinking that God's untrustworthy. I wish I could stop thinking that God's untrustworthy. Now, you wouldn't dare say that. So you say, I wish I could believe. But it's as devastating and as strong as saying, I wish I could stop thinking that God's untrustworthy. Imagine you had a really good friend. It's good, eh? Well, I pray that happens for you. Okay. But just, just that person in this imagination story. You, you've got this friend, Jim. And you've known Jim. You've known him for years. You've lived near to him. You've gone and played golf with him or you've you play football with them, you, you hang out, you know Jim, you know each other really well. And one day you go to Jim and say, Jim, I just have to tell you, I no longer trust you in the slightest. I can't trust a word you say. 
I fundamentally do not trust your character. I do not believe you can deliver on your promises. I believe that <clears throat> fundamentally your character is flawed and I can no longer depend on you in the slightest. Jim would protest at first. He'd say, well, what do you mean? And he would argue. But then you reiterate the point and said, I fundamentally cannot trust in you as a person. Then what happens to your friendship? Your friendship literally dies. It's an end. Alienation has taken place. You can no longer possibly be friends. <clears throat> and yet this is what people are doing, not just with a human being, but with God who is all pure and incredibly true and absolutely faithful to his promises and completely consistent in his character and completely eternal and mighty in his power and omniscient in his knowledge. This is God. And yet we come to him and say, I find it hard to believe him. What? I find it hard to believe God? You find something in him that's untrustworthy? It's completely crazy. And yet this is what unbelief is. And it's not just the... Pro- See, you're not going to Jimmy and saying, Jimmy, I don't believe you exist. You're not saying that. See, people think unbelief is believe- not believing that God exists. You're not saying, Jimmy, I don't believe you exist. You're saying, Jimmy, I don't trust your character. Now, atheism needs to be repented of as well, but I'm saying that fundamentally unbelief is not trusting the character of God, the God of the Bible, being true to his words. And you see, unbelief causes a troubled heart. Unbelief is the root cause of troubled hearts. You see, a human being without any faith in God is a totally alien concept. For the creation not to believe in the creator is the craziest, most ludicrous possibility. No wonder people's hearts are troubled. Someone once said, God is he who needs nothing to make him complete, but whom everything needs to complete it. You see, a star isn't complete without God. The sea can't roll without God. Birds can't sing without God. Planets can't spin without God. Your heart can't beat without God. So the possibility of you somehow not depending on that God causes your heart to be the most troubled heart possible. The the troubling in your heart comes from the root cause of you can't trust in this God. Internal chaos happens when you do not trust in God. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Notice he's being very specific here. You see, if I said that to you, if I said, don't let your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in Peter. What's going through your head just now? Heretic, right? Bit arrogant, (laughs) right? That's what goes through your head. So for me to say, believe in God, believe also in Peter, would be putting myself on a par with God as if I would be someone you could put your faith in and worship, right? So therefore, for Jesus to say that is him literally saying this. Believe in God. You've done that, guys. Disciples, you've done that. You've already believed in God. And now I'm asking you to believe also in me. In the same way you've believed in God, now also believe in me. Put your faith in me. Because Jesus and God are one and the same. So him saying, believe in God, God, you've done that already, guys. Now believe also in me. He's saying, I want you to add to the equation here, I am God, and put your faith in me. And this is really important, because their idea of faith had been in a God who was unseen, 
And soon, Jesus was about to be unseen to these disciples. You see, for those three years, they believed in Jesus in a certain way. But from the next few days onwards, after the death and resurrection and ascension of the Christ, they were believing in a Jesus who they could no longer see in the physical realm. Just like you and I believe in the exact same Jesus, who's just as tangible and as real today, right now, as they did. Believe in Jesus Christ. See, it's gone from being a a belief in general in a God being there who's created the world. Belief in general revelation. A God who created the world. A God who is a good God. A God who is a benevolent God. A God who is a faithful God. Gone from a general belief in God to belief in a special revelation of God. In that God, that God who created everything, the one God, the true God, has taken on flesh. He came into this world. I believe in that God. And he died on the cross for us sinners in our place. And he rose again on the third day and he ascended back to the Father. And he is one with the Father. He is God, one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Believe in that God. And it's gone from being a generalized, vague belief in the notion of there being a God out there to all of a sudden, I'm pinning this down. He's called Jesus Christ, one with the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God himself, I believe in him. That's what Jesus is saying. It's, it's going from belief that God's generally up there to believing the God who was generally up there has done something so magnificent for you. That's why he's saying, don't just believe in God, believe also in me. Believing in Jesus is you saying, I believe God did something for me. When you're saying you believe in Jesus, that's what you're saying. When you're believing in Jesus, you're saying, God's not just on the throne passively looking on at my life. When you're saying I'm believing in Jesus, you're believing in a God who got off his throne and did something for you. Romans 8 says in verse 31 and 32, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This isn't just a God who's sitting in neutral in relation to you. This is a God who's done something so colossal for you. Why are you wondering even if he wouldn't do other stuff? If he did that, why do you think he's holding back? It's like it says in Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because he who comes to God must believe that he is, general revelation, and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. He specifically has done something for you and he will continue to because of his incredible love and for you-ness. That's God. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus as he was with the disciples, as they were going through their darkest hours on earth, he told them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Have faith in God and me. As some of you are going through the darkest moments of your life, you need to hear God saying to you, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for you. Okay, second remedy for a troubled heart, eternal hope. Verse 2, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? My father's house. Now, depending on what translation, some of these verses are pretty familiar verses to us. And some of you read them before, but maybe you've read them in a different translation. And uh, different translations, just like if, if you took something from French and brought it into English, there'd be several ways you could take that statement in French to translate it accurately into English. Several ways you could put it, and yet it would still be accurate. Okay? 
And that's what you find with English translations of the Bible. Some translations of the Bible render that, in my father's house there are many mansions. Anyone read that before? So what we have in our heads is an impression. Now, the Greek language actually is translated better here in the New International Version, which I'm using, uh, which is, in my father's house there are many rooms or uh, many dwelling places. <coughs> that's the more accurate rendition. So when you, when you think there are many mansions, you're thinking, Yay, heaven is going to be this place where there's going to be lots of mansions. God's got a mansion for me in heaven. Now, not that God has a problem with you having a mansion in heaven, but that's not really the picture he's wanting you to have. You see, many of your picture is you arrive at the, the gates, the pearly gates, which doesn't really talk about that much in the Bible. And Peter will be there. Where's that from? That's from jokes, not the Bible. Peter's there at the pearly gates, and he's like an estate agent, and he gives you a map. Here's the map to your mansion. It's, it's along there, several miles third and the right, that's your mansion. And he gives you a golf buggy to get you to your mansion. And there's the key. And, and by the way, God lives eight miles away, third and the right, as if that's the picture. That's not the picture the Bible's trying to give you here, that God's got a mansion for you, that you're going to have this key and you're going to find your mansion and God will live somewhere, other, some other place other than where you live. That's not the picture. The picture actually is rightly described. In my father's house, there are many rooms or many dwelling places. And what happens in that culture was that when people got married in that culture, a father who gave his son to get married, <clears throat> the son would get married and the father would extend his house. And he would create another dwelling place as an extension to his house. And then the son would move in with his wife. And then as his other son got married, they'd extend the house again. And eventually it'd be a larger dwelling surrounding it like a courtyard. And it, they were all living in one place, but they had their own dwelling places. That's the picture God wants us to have. That when you go to heaven, you're not going to be like eight miles along the road from God. You're going to be in the presence of God perpetually for eternity. It's interesting when the Bible talks about eternity, it talks about it in different ways. It tries to describe to us the incredibleness of it. Revelation 21, 16 is one description. It describes it as the new Jerusalem, a city. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. Its, went, its length, its width, and its height are equal. It's a cube. 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. An Australian engineer did a calculation, and it came out as, that is 2,250,000 square miles. Big city. London is 600 square miles with a population of 8 million people. So this heavenly city that's been described here, taking the same ratio as London, you can look like this, uh, would accommodate 100 billion people. Multiple times more than even our population size just now. How big's heaven? Are there, Jesus said there are many, many many dwelling places. I, I think God has catered for a mass harvest. Uh, Timothy writes, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, God desires that none should perish. I don't know how you feel about this city. I love this city. Not talking about heavenly city, just now I'm talking about this city. I love this city. I love the people in this city. I believe God has a plan for people in this city, even though many people are currently saying, I do not trust in your character, God. They're living in unbelief, and yet God loves them. And he's committed to them and he's done something for them in the cross. 
part of our big part of our mission as a church is to be salt and light, to influence and to speak life and to bring blessing and to bring healing and God's love and God's salvation to a city that so desperately needs it. And there's much room in that. I want to populate heaven with Edinburgh people. I want that. I really want that. And I think, no, Peter, you don't want them there. No, we do want them there. We want them there. We want them there en masse. We want to see, our prayer is, God, would you let it be that by the time we're finished here, that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are in that heavenly city who wouldn't have been had we not have done this thing called Destiny Church Edinburgh. That's our prayer. That's what we long for. I believe for that. Believe with me. And then we see this, this here's his the amazing thing. He knew full well they were about to deny him. He's speaking to disciples who, one of them has just left because he's going to betray Jesus. Peter is going to overtly deny him three times before the rooster crows that night. And the rest of them are going to abandon him. Speaking to those people, he gives them eternal security. That's incredible. You see, some of you are freaked out thinking, am I going to be secure in heaven? What if I don't make it? What if I deny him? What if I blow it here? In fact, you look back at the last few months even, you think, I've blown it here. You need to know Jesus speaking to disciples who were literally about to blow it. And he just told them they were. He said, he told them, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And I'm going to bring you to myself. Listen to what it says in Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestines, he also calls. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Big words, awesome meaning. Those whom he called, you know when you get saved, he called you. He also predestined. In other words, God had planned you. He, so he, he predestined you. He thought about you before you were ever born. He knew you. Now, there's a whole discussion there. Don't worry about it. It's just wonderful. Wow, God predestined me? Wow. If your concept of predestination doesn't make you go, wow, God, you're great, then you've got a weird concept of predestination. Uh, some people get all locked up in it, and it becomes a, a horrendous thought. No, it's a glorious thought. He predestined. He called you. And what happens? He called you. He justified you. He says, you put your faith in Jesus. What happens? Justified. That means he wiped you clean. He declared you righteous. Justified is a legal term. The courts have acquitted you. Morally speaking, you are forgiven in the sight of a holy God. You are declared righteous in the sight of God. But then it says, those whom he justified, he also glorifies. Now, when is that going to happen? Those whom he justified, he also... Now, we, for those who are saved, you know when you were justified. You could put a date in it, maybe. But for those... Can we... Do we know when we're going to be glorified? Some of you are thinking, I've arrived. No, <laughs> you really haven't. Ask your wife. Okay. Glorified. That's a future event. It's a future event. It will take place at the moment when you get a resurrection body. And yet here in Romans, it puts it in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Because as far as God's concerned, it's a done deal. 
Those whom he justified, he has also glorified. If you are justified, you have arrived. And sure, there may be a process of time between now and your departure from this life. But when you came to Jesus Christ, eternally speaking, you're in his hands forever. Did you get really saved? Yes? Well, then you're his. He says to these people who are just about to deny him, I'm preparing a place for you, knowing full well what they're going to do to that night. Because when you come to Jesus, it doesn't excuse sin, but when you come to Jesus, he cleanses you from past, present, and future sin. Because he's God, and he stands outside of time. That's what he's done for you. Those who justify, he's also glorified. You know, it's interesting, then he goes on and says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you <clears throat> to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know, I love that. He's speaking here about his ultimate final return. I, I love how he's speaking here. He's not speaking like a doom gloom, because just bear in mind, Jesus is speaking knowing that within a few hours he's going to be hanging a cross. It's like, I'm speaking to you tonight, tomorrow morning, nine o'clock, I'm going to be on a Roman cross. How would you be feeling? How would you be speaking knowing that? And yet Jesus, knowing that full well, speaks beyond the cross and saying, I'm going to return in victorious splendor as the conquering king of this earth. Love it. He saw right past the pain, right past the cross to the victory that lay ahead. Just as Jesus came, just as certainly as Jesus came, he will come back. Absolutely. That will be an incredible moment. It will be a judgment moment for many. It will be a redemption moment for many. You know, the reality of this hope is so strong. Karl Marx, in a derogatory way, spoke about Christianity. He said that religion is the opium of the masses. In other words, it just keeps them from getting all upset with the messed up life they've got. It keeps them in unreality. It keeps them in a high. It gets their mind off the real things. Karl Marx saw <clears throat> that how Christianity gives a hope of an eternal life. He says, you're just making up myths to give people false comfort in this life so they don't face realities. But Jesus here says, in my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. Jesus said, if it were not so, I would not have told you this. The only reason he's telling us this is because this is totally so. Eternity is an absolute reality. And when you know this, it empowers you to live in this life rather than escape this life. I remember when my mum uh, was severely ill, I was believing for a miracle, as we all should for that situation. But I also knew this. As things progressed and seemed to get worse despite our praying, I knew this is a win-win. Mum knew God. Either she gets miraculously healed and we have a great testimony for the glory of God, or mum is going to be with Jesus for all eternity before me. Win-win. That's the reality of eternal hope. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because Jesus is saying, there is an eternal hope. That changes your perspective in this life. Third remedy for a troubled heart, a saviour. Jesus goes on, verse 4. You know the place, uh, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas is basically saying, our knowledge of everything, Jesus, stops after death. We don't know stuff that goes on after that. How do we know how to get there? We don't know the way there. Do you know, our culture has no problem with spirituality. Our culture has no problem with prayer. Our culture has no problem with the teachings of Jesus. Our culture has no problem with so many aspects of what we would consider our faith. But this statement of Jesus, our culture has a serious problem with. Jesus said, Thomas, let me tell you how you get there. I am the way, the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Jesus absolutely claims exclusivity. He's not giving any other possibility, no other religion, no other guru, just Jesus. Only through Jesus can you get to the Father. That's what he's saying. He can't, he can't ignore that. That's exactly what he's saying. Like it or not, that's what he's saying. And our culture has a massive problem with that. John Blanchard talks about our culture, and our culture says that you can't claim anything is absolutely true. So he says this, the claim that there is no such thing as absolute truth self-destructs. Because if there is no such thing as absolute truth, then the statement itself cannot be absolutely true. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> See, our world, I mean, forget the title, but what people describe en masse as going on in our world is called postmodernism, right? You, you know what that's like. It's like, oh yeah, each to their own. As long as you're sincere about what you believe, that's all that matters. As if sincerity is more important than truth. As if sincerity is the ultimate gauge of truth. That's kind of postmodern speak. And like people are saying, well, who are you to say that person's right and that person's wrong? They say that. As long as you're sincere about what you believe. Now, they all say that. But the moment someone robs them, right? They say, that's wrong. Well, are you sure it's wrong? <laughs> Great theory. And they just have these stupid theories that don't have any substance to it. It's just, a, it's just a glib thing they say as if that answers all arguments. As if that gets them off the hook from having an absolute conviction. Because the truth is, when the rubber hits the road and they get robbed by someone, they'll shout, unjust. They'll say, black and white, right and wrong. As soon as it affects them... They know their justice and they know their stance and they know their black and whites. They don't really believe in postmodernism. You, everyone, we're not stupid. You know, like, well, is that ground really there? Of course it's there. Don't be stupid. We are, you know, you know, everything, we'd all go ballistically crazy if, if, if we couldn't just trust truth. We know what's true and what's not true. And we know if Jesus said, and if people say, oh, well, all ways lead to God. If you're saying that, you obviously haven't looked at what the religions say because they totally contradict each other. Now, be reasonable. Be a bit wiser than half of our culture. There is a truth. There is true and there is false. And Jesus here, whether you agree with this or not, Jesus is claiming he's the way, the truth, and the life. C.S. Lewis, speaking about Jesus, said this. A man who is really a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. But let's not come up with some patronizing nonsense about him being some great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. C.S. Lewis is making it really clear. To make the statement that Jesus made, I am the way, the truth, and life, no one gets to the Father except through me. That statement and many other statements that Jesus made to being God. To make those statements, you'd either have to be mad because you believed something that wasn't true, you were deluded, mad, or you were evil, you knew exactly what you were saying was wrong, but you went ahead and said it anyway to deceive people, or you were exactly who you said you were, and therefore you should listen, repent, and give your whole life to him. Three options. There's no fourth option. That's the only possibility of what was going on in Jesus' soul. Jesus said, I'm the way. You see, if you were lost somewhere and you and you kind of, you ask someone, can you tell me how to get to there in this city? And they said, okay, I want you to go along that street, take the fourth and the left, go across the square, take the second and the right. After you've gone about a few hundred yards, take the left turn, sharp left turn, and then go along that street a few hundred yards, and it's the fourth and the right again, and then the first and the right, and then the second and the left, and then the fourth and the right. Now, you, you'd be, oh, man, You'd have got halfway there, right? And then you'd have got lost, unless you had an iPhone, right? <clears throat> you'd have got lost. And, but imagine that person, you said, okay, how do I get there? And they said to you, that's fine, I'll take you. How many people realize it wasn't just that they showed you the way, that, but they are the way. I'm going to take you there. And when you come to Jesus Christ, you are connecting not just with a nice thought or a nice teacher that you can memorize his old teachings but you are actually connecting alive with him today he's alive we're not talking about following a dead person we're talking about following someone who's totally alive with us right now it's about letting your heart every day follow him and he will guide you through life and furthermore what he did on the cross means that you through christ have direct access he's the way to the father okay he said i'm the way i'm the truth now many people have told us true things Many people have taught true things, but not anyone has claimed to be the truth. You see, we understand that when you're teaching moral things, that, that your moral character must completely line up with your teaching. Otherwise, it undermines your ability to teach that truth, yeah? We understand that, yeah? Okay, so for example, say you're teaching geometry or uh, how to build a wall, right? You don't have to have a good moral character to do that. You can teach them that truth without having good character, yeah? Agreed? But if you're going to teach someone on something moral, you need to have a good character. So if you're an adulterer, you can't really teach people on purity, right? If you're a fraudster, you can't really teach people on financial integrity. You understand what I'm saying? Now, here's the problem. Many human beings have taught truth, but not one of them the problem we've got is not one of our lives measure ever, ever up to the truth that we teach. Never. Other than Jesus Christ. When Jesus taught truth, he embodied everything that he taught. And therefore, he isn't just the teacher of the truth. He is the truth. He is the absolute embodiment of that. And how, how do you know it's true? You know, well, we could give you evidences. We could take time to do that. That's a different message, but we could do that stuff. But you know what? 
All I can say is this. If, if I let you taste honey, if I let you taste honey, and you say to me, that's not sweet, then there's nothing more I can do for you. And if I, all I can do is say, Jesus Christ, there he is. He's either God, and your spirit will totally witness the truth of that, or there's nothing else I can do for you. We can argue about it and try and persuade your heads, but fundamentally, faith comes from your heart. And I can't, I can't do any more than say, he's God's, and by his spirit, he can reveal that to you. Run to him. And then he said, I'm the life. I'm the source. I'm the creator of life. I'm the sustainer of life. Come to me and I'll give you life. And through his death, you can have eternal life. Jesus is the life. And he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, to make that claim, you see, either that is ultimate solution to the troubled heart, or it's the most cruel, deceptive, devious lie ever. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because when you're on your deathbeds, either you've believed the truth or a lie. Jesus is saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. Either Jesus was arrogant to the core or completely humble. Either Jesus was deceived liar or he was the Son of God and is the Son of God. Either Jesus was a phony who deserved to be crucified and exposed or he loved you so much that he willingly laid down his life on that cross, paid the price for your sin, rose on the third day and today offers you eternal life. Jesus said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Do you know what? If you're not a disciple, Jesus can't say that to you. If you're not connected with God, your heart should be troubled. If you and God are not connected, you should be severely troubled more than any other trouble you've ever had in your life. You should be eternally troubled if you're not connected with God. You need him. So Jesus can only say that to people who have connected with him and said yes. So if you haven't said yes to him, then put your faith in Jesus. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? It's interesting. Thomas's question provoked this huge statement of Jesus. But you know, Thomas, I can find recorded in the Bible two questions that Thomas asked. This is the first question. We don't know the way there. And then Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The second question Thomas asked was after the resurrection. And this is what it says in John 20. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. <coughs> this is after the resurrection. We've seen him alive. And he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Thomas asked the question, how are we going to get there? Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. He asked another question. I don't believe he's risen. Jesus appears to him alive. And he falls on his knees and says, my Lord 
and my God. The question is, is Jesus crazy? Was he evil? Or was he exactly who he claimed to be? Well, for Thomas, he got his answer. You're my Lord and my God. You're exactly who you've been claiming all along. And what you did for me in that cross saves me. Now, I don't know if Jesus is going to appear to you. He does that today. He does that these days. He could very well do that. I don't know for what reason he doesn't typically do that. Typically, he doesn't do that. But all I know is this, that typically faith is absolute heartfelt conviction in him who you cannot see and yet you love and you believe in him. That's faith. And you put your faith in Jesus, he deals with your troubled heart. So at the announcement of war, the British government published a poster, keep calm and carry on. Uh, we, would, we would be very well justified in saying, well, what's the basis for that? You know, what's the, what makes you so sure it's all going to be okay? Jesus, after announcing severely bad news, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. But he didn't just throw you a nice sentiment, a nice emotional, oh, that's a nice encouraging thought, Jesus. He gave you th- three things, remedies for a troubled heart. Number one, faith in God and specifically in Jesus Christ. Number two, a belief and absolute understanding of eternity. Knowing, knowing that eternal life has been given to you already, dealt with when you put your faith in Jesus. And number three, a savior. Savior you can totally pin everything on, exclusively. You don't need to hedge your bets and say, I'll have this, but we'll have a bit of this religion just in case this isn't right. No, that, that would be to dishonor this. That would be to dishonor truth. It's absolute faith in the absolute savior of the world. He alone was qualified to be the truth and to die in our place for us sinners. You can have absolute confidence in him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. In your love, you sent Jesus. And Jesus, your coming brings us such assurance, God. God, we're, we're, you've just said so much to us in these verses, Lord Jesus. You've spoken about eternity, but you've also spoken about our temporary travels. And God, you know every person in this room, God, some here are severely troubled. They are troubled to the point of being tormented in their minds. They are devastated by what they're going through. And God, I want to thank you. Your word to them is this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I pray, God, that even as we've spoken that, that faith would arise in their hearts, God. That a trust in a God who knows the outcome of all things would rise in their hearts and they would have peace. Come Holy Spirit and do that, I pray. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you've given us eternal hope as well. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for the reality of eternal life. It's the idea of heaven has been so eroded by bad art and, and religious people and religious descriptions. and it's, it's been so made small and horrible and ephemeral. But God, the truth is, if this earth is great, 
how much better is the next world to come because you've spoken that about that so clearly in the Bible. And I pray, God, that eternal hope would rise in the hearts of these people here, God. I pray, God, we will be people who live in Edinburgh, totally grounded in the now. But at the same time, God, we've got an absolute assurance of eternal life. That when we would, we'd be people who die well. That when we're on our deathbeds, we would die well. We would die well because of our faith in you. And God, I pray that we will be people who have faith in an exclusive Savior. That Jesus, you are exactly who you claim to be. I pray that would give us assurance. That we would, we would not hedge our bets or worry if we got it right or here or that. Lord, I pray we just narrow it down and have faith in you. Okay, just take a moment in God's presence just to make your own response to God. If you're troubled today, put your faith in Jesus. Just, just take a moment to pray back your response. If you're troubled today, if there's things in your mind, as a church, let's, let's pray for each other here. If you're troubled, you don't need to say what it's about. Just stand wherever you are. There's things going on in your soul. You're troubled. You're disturbed. You're worried. You're fearful. Just wherever you are, just stand, just in the room. Just really quickly. Not sure how things are going to turn out. Fearful that you're going to be left in the situation you're in for a long time. Fearful about your health. Just quickly stand. And folks around these people, just, just can you just reach out and place your hands on someone standing next to you? Uh, leaders as well, if you could make sure that happens, that'd be great. And just take a moment to pray over them. If you haven't stood and you need to stand, you quickly stand as well. If you're up in the balcony and you need to stand, you stand and someone will pray for you up there as well. In the cafe, can folks get around these folks in the cafe just to pray over them? That'd be great. They just ask God's blessing. And as people are praying for you and you're in this place of being troubled, you know, just give it over to God. Give it into his hands. Cast it on his shoulders. Trust him with it. Put your faith in Jesus right now. Go for it, folks. Pray over them. Ask God to strengthen them. Ask God to give them peace. right now they're giving it to you and we're asking Father that you would bring your peace, bring your strength even bring joy in the midst of it 
Come Holy Spirit, strengthen these people. Take the burden of it, Lord. And that thing that they're worried about, they don't just want the emotion of it to go. They want it to turn out well. They want the thing they're worried about to turn out well. So we're asking you, God, for your outcome in these situations. In Jesus' name, thank you. You said if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? So God, let your mighty strengthening work happening in these lives. In Jesus' name. Everyone stand just now. Everyone stand in his presence. If you're here today and you're not in relationship with God, then the most important thing for you just now is to get right with God. Let's just pray. If you're here today and you know, Peter, I need God in my life. Today, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. I'm going to pin my colors to the mass. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. I'm going to trust him to be my savior. If that's you today, I invite you very simply just to pray this prayer with me. Under your breath, not out loud, just quietly between you and God. Pray with me. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you, Jesus, for your death on that cross. Thank you for your resurrection on the third day. I believe you did that to save me. Today, I place my whole faith in you. I believe you're alive, risen from the dead. Would you be the Lord of my life from now on? Thank you for hearing my prayer and for accepting me today as your child. Amen. I hope that today's message has helped you. If you want to find out more about us as a church, download more audio teaching, give us feedback, or make a contribution to our ongoing work and mission here in Edinburgh, please visit our website at destinyedinburgh.com. May God continue the great work that he is doing in your life.